0: Hey, hey, this is Dave from Monster Magnet, and you're listening to The Ratio Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ratio podcast. I am your host, Johnny Ray, and today we are honored to have the mighty Jackie, the Joke Man Martling, on the show today on the Ratio. So uh, get ready for just one of the funnest chats we've had. I mean, uh, Jackie knows everything, he's an absolute legend. Uh, he's, he, he knows everyone, and he's got stories just aren't gonna believe um a real radio pioneer and a a super cool guy at that so uh we'll have the chat with jackie coming up in just a second i want to thank everybody for all the great response from the kira episode it uh really just like with dave we are we are so thrilled to be back with you all and, and bringing you these chats with these uh cool artists and, and people it's it's just overwhelming how cool and how receptive you have been so i just wanted to say thank you uh on the ratio side of it um we have a promo coming out this week uh or next i believe before halloween so uh while you guys were enjoying your sunday evening we were we were finishing the final shot of this and uh, let me tell you it came out really really cool a lot of uh great area athens folk came out and uh filled the uh the movie up with just greatness and uh i can't wait for everybody to see it and uh we will have that out to you soon on the ratio uh facebook or on the ratio instagram at ratio podcast well without further ado let's get to our our talk with jackie the joke man martling hello everybody today's a special day on the ratio podcast we have comedian actor writer radio pioneer enthusiastic skinny dipper loyal friend and all-around badass jackie martling on the show jackie the joke man how the hell are you
0: doing today i could not be better i woke up uh it's Horrible out there. It's like 55 degrees and windy, but I went for my nice long swim like I always do, and then climbed back in bed and relaxed a little bit. And uh, now I'm sitting here putzing around, pretending I got something to do. And then I, uh, I just called into Ireland to. I don't know if you know. Do you know who Donovan is? Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Well, Donovan's son-in-law has a podcast called the Sync Report. That's all about getting music. Uh, put into tv shows and movies and i start his show off with filthy jokes and they just love it over there they go nuts so he's trying to bring me to ireland so that i just hung up with him and now i'm talking to you that's That's, my life
1: that's excellent man you're living right you know that you know that though
0: well you just as well might have talked me to on a day where i didn't do a goddamn thing (laughs) I just happened to, I hit the lottery today, that's all. You oh, know. man,
1: I hear it. Well, you know, it's ironic you bring up music because that's like uh, where I'd like to begin. We got so much to talk to with Jackie today about the documentary, the book, his illustrious career. But I'd like to talk, kind of take you back a little bit Um I'd like to start by discussing music. Uh, your showbiz career began there, and I think it had pro- progressed very naturally, very organically. I mean, through a hard a lot of hard work, of course, um, in music. So, so, if you could take our listeners back, what it was like when you started entertaining for people, you know, uh, in Oyster Bay and and within your <coughs> earlier uh, bands, uh, we'd love to hear. Well,
0: that. I grew up. I grew up in the North Shore of Long Island uh, in a little hamlet called East Norwich. And I first started entertaining. Uh, In first grade, I was a candy cane. (laughs) And in third grade, I was Peter Cratchit in the Bird's Christmas Carol, which was exciting because the the principal came into the third grade class and called me out of class. And you know, it's a tiny school, it's pretty intimidating. And she pulls me out in the hall, and she says, do you want to be in the school play? I'm like, Jesus, you you could have told me it wasn't something serious. And then I actually got asked to host a – I was the MC of a blue and gold dinner for the Cub Scouts and actually told a dick joke. (laughs) That was probably my first laugh. And I saw my cousin tell a dirty joke in third grade, and that caught my attention. But what happened was a guy I went to kindergarten with – Around seventh grade or so, uh, I got wind of the fact that uh, he was playing the guitar. And I went up to him and I said, what's with the guitar? He said, well, I met a girl in Sunday school and she told me she thought Ricky Nelson was really cool because he sang and played guitar. So I signed up for guitar lessons and then I went back to Sunday school and the girl moved. I never saw her again. He said, but if you want, I can teach you four chords and we can have a band that sounds good to me it made it a lot easier to chase girls with a guitar absolutely so he taught me four chords and we had a band all through high school and then i had a band all through college and then when i came up from college the entire 70s uh i wrote songs and me and this guy same guy that taught me guitar the two of us played uh original songs and told dirty jokes and played acoustic guitars and drove around in a 1955 bright yellow Cadillac hearse. Nice. (laughs) And uh, we got nowhere. I tried so hard. You know, I I have the same conversations with everybody I talk to that art is such a weird thing. Because how successful you are and how good you are and how much money you make at it has very little relevance to... How much you love it, how much work you put into it, how much sweat and heart. I'm telling you, I worked so hard on my songs and I love my songs and I was so dug in, but I sucked. And (laughs) I got nowhere. And in like 1978, the, the other two guys were a three piece band that by the end of the 70s, we had added an organ player who also played bass with his left hand. So uh I mean a piano player and it was just great. We were we kicked ass. Everybody loved us. The songs were great. The jokes were great. But we were terrible. We made no money. <laughs> and one night, it's a three piece band. At the end of the night, the other two guys said to they said to me, Jackie, we're gonna leave the band and start our own band. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, "Listen, you assholes! I said, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if three guys are in a band and <clears throat> two of them leave to start their own band, that's kicking me out of the fucking band." Let's <laughs> you know. Yes. Yeah. So by then, I but the truth was, I told all the jokes and I wrote all the most of the songs. So it really, it really was my band. And then I started. Uh, I met a guy. It's it's all in my book, you know. It's a long story, but I met a guy and started. Uh, telling jokes on stage. And I, it, the transition was, I was a, a singer, song, a singer songwriter who told jokes. And I went from a guitar player who told jokes to being a guy who told jokes that played the guitar, yes. which sounds kind of subtle, but all of a sudden, you know, I'm up on stage. And the main thing was telling my dirty jokes right. and, uh, and you know, from working in a studio in the seventies, I knew how to make a record and, so I made a record, you know. I was in comedy six months, and I had my own comedy LP, which, you know, it sucked, but but it still was impressive. You know, that's quite a calling card, your own album, yeah. you know.
1: Holding a record then, it's just people can't even know the concept, you know, you can't even get the context of it, some people live now. And that's you were so groundbreaking in that. Now, you said you knew a little bit around the studio did you just did you engineer mix
0: all these things on
1: your own these records that you were putting out
0: you know the way my life has gone uh, i gotta believe everybody's life is interesting but it's pretty pretty crazy <clears throat> my band in the 70s played <clears throat> sorry i played in these tiny little bars we were too loud and dirty for a wine and cheese bar, but we weren't big and loud enough for the rock and roll bars. So we played in these little, like they're almost like pubs. And we played in the same owner had two two different places. And we played in each of them one night a week. And there was another band that played there one night a week on another night. And I was writing songs about this girl and this girl broke my heart to where I was out of my mind. And honestly, this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but I think the owner of the Neptune Pub was afraid I was going to kill myself. In which case, that would have been two nights at his clubs that weren't sold out. So <laughs> he got the bright. We did a song called the Pot Song that always got five encores. The audience went absolutely berserk, and it was one of the guys in the other bands on a different night had started his own recording studio. And the owner said, listen, I'm going to back you guys doing the pot song and we can record it at Kevin's studio. And I said, "That's all right with me as long as you let me put my love song about my girlfriend Eileen on the other side. And they said, sure. And we recorded the song at the studio. But this is so crazy. The audience used to go so berserk that they said, hey, why don't we record the crowd's reaction to your song live? So Kevin and his partner, even though we played in the same places, you never see the other bands because they're there on a different night. So they came to record us and they came to set up and he saw that I had a foot tambourine. I actually had a tambourine with a piece of rubber over my foot. (laughs) And that was our drummer. (laughs) <laughs> and you can hear it on the recordings. But it, it was great, you know, the thud and the tinkle. And they saw that I had a microphone on my foot tambourine. And they said, you know what, that guy has the concept of recording. And they asked me to come work at the studio. Oh, man. So I worked at the studio for two years for free. Just absorbing what I could and working, playing guitar at night. And then the band broke up and I was playing by myself just me and my guitar and then I met some comedians and then the comedians started coming to my gigs I mean I had Eddie Murphy on the stage at the Neptune pub Oh, yeah you know it was unbelievable and uh, and then the you know the, and then the guys I was playing a couple nights solo and a couple nights with the band and then the guys threw me out of the band but in the process of working at the studio I learned that any moron can have a record all you need is a tape And a few dollars and a few pictures and you send the tape and the money and the pictures to a a place that makes records and you get a record. It's like baking a cake. Now, nobody knows that. Back then, you know, like Bill Cosby had an album and George Carlin had an album and Robert Klein had an album. But they were put out by record companies. It was a real big deal. So the concept of having an album, nobody had any idea I did it myself, even though I told them it was so funny. Six months after I, I mean, I recorded my album on a Nakamichi cassette player. Wow. With me on the left channel and the audience mics in the right channel then transferred the cassettes to reel to reel, edited them with a razor blade and splicing tape. I mean, in my mother's attic. I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 I was Edison, you know,
1: That's so bad. But all
0: of a sudden, I've got this album, and I'm selling my albums at the door as people are leaving, which there isn't a person that does music or comedy nowadays that's not selling stuff on the way out, but nobody did it back then. And I'm selling my albums at the door. I'm signing my autograph and selling them for $5, and the other comics are breaking my balls. They're all making fun of me. What a jerk. And then one night, somebody said, you know, we made $40 a piece tonight, and Martin Lee made an extra 75 bucks selling his stupid albums. Maybe he's not that dumb. <laughs> and also, duh. Then I made another album. And then I made a third album. And my my future ex-wife, we she came to work with me after I put out my second record. And I mean, we sent them everywhere. I mean, everywhere. If I ran into you on the street, I sent you a record. When I had two records, I sent you two records. By the time I had three records, we'd send all three records, matching cassettes, everything. If I bumped in you on the other street and you said, "Oh, you know, I like comedy," let me send you my, st- <laughs> not knowing what's going to happen. And one of the people I sent, one of the people we sent those three comedy albums to with the cassettes, was Howard Stern. Right. And so he called me up and said, "Hey, you're a riot. Come in and hang out one day." And I went in and hung out one day. Now the great part of the story is that when I was recording the pot song and those guys came to see me and they saw me with my foot tambourine and asked me to work at their studio, five years ago, one of those guys married my sister.
1: Wow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, I stick to people's feet like gum, you know? Like, (laughs) it's unbelievable. The guy's so sweet and so talented. And he, you know, he's a member of the family, but it, it just went on and on. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I, it's so funny cause years ago, like 15 years ago, I wrote this crazy song and I hadn't written a song in decades and I got inspired and <clears throat> you can cut me off if, if I'm going on too much. You oh, absolutely know. not,
1: man. You're going, this is I, uh, heaven, man.
0: I was. I was at Les Paul's 85th birthday party. Jesus Christ! And uh, my friend Adam said, "You got to come meet Les. He'll love you. You'll love him." And he had been trying to get me and Fred Norris from the show for ten or fifteen years. Adam had been trying to get us to come see Les Paul. Finally, one night, my friend Carrie Ash, whose husband was the grandson of Sam Ash, like in music stores. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> she said. You're coming to see Les Paul tonight. If you don't get in the limo, I'm coming up and dragging you in. So she picked us up and, you know, my apartment was like two blocks away from where Les was playing. She said, You gotta come, the Rolling Stones are gonna be there. It's a whole big yeah. deal. I said, All right, so I go. And I'm sitting there, and Les Paul comes walking down the aisle of this small little jazz club, and I hear him say to my friend Adam, Jackie, the joke man's here tonight. And I couldn't really believe what I heard, but old people don't sleep. They lie there all night. So the Stern show was a godsend to him. He'd lie there awake and listen to every show. And he's a dirty old man. He loved filthy jokes. He was so great. So he goes up on stage and he says, Jackie, the joke man's here. He calls me on stage and this is year 2000. I'm still drinking. So I got some beers in me. (laughs) (laughs) He says, you tell dirty jokes. Give me, give me what you got. And I'm looking out at a packed audience. His 85th birthday, you know, jazz aficionados and music hounds and, and press and, and Keith Richards is there in his full regalia. Like, you know, with beads in his, in his, in his cornrows and the colored scarf. And he's, and he's there with his mother. And, so I get on stage and Les Paul says uh, you tell dirty jokes. Well, give me what you got. I said, are you sure? And he said, go ahead. Give me what you got. I said, let you sure. He said, Dep. I told five or six of the filthiest jokes I had <laughs> and blew the roof off the place. Nobody laughed harder than Les. He couldn't believe it. I said, all right, I'm getting off. All the getting's good. I sat down. Les, I'm I, you know, I, I'm like in euphoria and Les Paul brings Keith Richards up on stage and the first thing Keith Richards says to Les Paul is, it's going to be, be kind of tough to follow that bloke. <laughs> <laughs> so Keith play, Keith, Keith Richards plays a couple songs and by now I know that his mother is in the audience, right? And it turns out Keith Richards' mother was a blues singer. Who'd been around the block and she's a musician. So of wow. course she's heard it all right. <clears throat> I went to see Les Paul 50 or 60 times. And I never ever saw him call somebody up to the stage for a second time. Keith Richards got off the stage. Les played another song. And he said, check the joke, man, come back up here, come back up here. And I'm like, he was so, you know, enamored of the jokes and the craziness and he knew what I did. And I came on stage and he said, listen, uh, and I said, wait a minute, before you say anything, I said, Keith, I just like to apologize. If I knew your mother was in the audience, I would never have told those off color jokes. And he stood up and he said, yeah, I'll tell you something about your mother. And and I said to the audience, I said, look at this. I'm getting heckled by a Rolling Stone. (laughs) How great is that? And the audience went nuts. Okay. Oh, God. So then Les Paul says to me, all right, Jackie, tell me, you sit there and you write notes for this guy as he goes along to make him funnier. What's the deal? And I said, Les, listen, this audience is here to see you. It's your 85th birthday. They're all your music fans. Maybe some of them know who Howard Stern is, but probably a lot of them have no idea. They don't really care. Listen, do your show, play your songs, have a great time. And when we're done, we'll go to the bar, we'll have a few beers, and who knows? Maybe, maybe Keith will join us at the bar. And you know what? Maybe he'll even buy. <laughs> and you know what? If he doesn't have any money on him, Maybe he could use some of those fucking beads that are in his head. <laughs> Holy Christ. The, I'm telling you, the roof came off the place. And then I turned <laughs> to the audience and said, now I'm fucking with a rolling stone. How good is that? And I had never heard such a loud cheer in my life. And I hugged, I hugged Les Paul, went and sat at the table. And for the next nine years, we were asshole buddies. Nice. And every time I went to see him, he brought me up on stage. This all ties into what we're talking about. So I go on stage and I tell jokes at the Iridium with him every couple of weeks, and everybody goes nuts, but nobody loves the dirty jokes more than Les Paul. So he's got ridiculous musicians, and there's this guy, Frank Vignola, who's a world-renowned guitar player, who's his guitar player. Now, if you're Les Paul's guitar player, it's kind of like being <laughs> Dolly Parton's tit stand You know what I mean? <laughs> So I go up to Frank Vignola. One one of the nights after I get done, I walk up to him and said, Frank, listen, I know how incredible you guys are. I feel like such a jerk up there with these stupid jokes with world-class musicians. Does it does it upset you guys? He said, are you kidding? You bring so much energy. Oh, my God. We love it when you're here. So I, I was so thrilled.
1: Oh, gosh. That, that's... Next
0: time or two times later, whatever. We're in the green room and I go up to Frank Vignola and I say, Frank, do you smoke pot? He said, what are you kidding? (laughs) And I gave him a big manila envelope full of my homegrown pot. Well, now that's sealed. Now we are ridiculous friends. Every time I show up to see less, I come up and tell jokes. I give Frank more pot. We're, we're really, really tight. So I hadn't written a song in 20 years. And I'm driving, driving into Manhattan. And I have this girl that is a good friend of mine named JC. I just love her. Who lived in Las Vegas at the time. And I'm driving along in my car. And I got a bowl of pot. And I've got my uh, phone on Bluetooth. So my hands are free to light the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> and I call JC. And I get her answering machine. And she says, I'm sorry I'm not here. And I said, Jesus, I left the message. Jay, I can't believe it. I got 45 minutes before I get to my apartment. We could have shot the shit and came up, uh, you know, brought each other up to date. Ah, damn it. Oh, well, at any rate, I'm smoking pot. I got my dick out, and I'm thinking about you. (laughs) (laughs) And I hung up. And then I said to myself, holy Christ, I'm smoking pot. I got my dick out. And, I'm th- and I start singing to myself. And the people in the cars, Nick, in the other lanes are looking at me like, what's wrong with this guy? I'm stoned <laughs> out of my mind. I put on my micro cassette recorder. I go, I'm smoking pot. I got my dick out. And I'm thinking about you. Thinking about you. I'm driving along, singing a song. And I got my dick out. thinking about- And I'm dying. I get to my apartment. I play the micro cassette while I'm recording myself with my Casio little video thing on my on my camera. And I play that back. I'm smoking probably while I'm lighting a joint and smoking it. I still got the little piece of tape. that's hysterical. And I called Frank Fignola. I said, listen, Frank, I got his answering machine. I just I just wrote either the world's worst song or the world's best song. I have no idea. I'm going to send it to you. I sent him the MP3, he called me back, he said, that's the greatest fucking thing I've ever heard, we gotta record it. So I went in the studio with Frank, and his partner Joe, and another guy, and we spent hours in the studio, and I'm making up words as we go along for this stupid song, and we come up with this masterpiece that so many people just love, and we get done, and he goes, this is so much fun. He says, do you got any other songs? I said, as a matter of fact, I got way too many of them from back when I quit music. And we wound up recording an album right here at Chokeland. We did a, full, a whole album called Happy Endings. That's <laughs> <And,
1: laughs> yeah, perfect. And
0: everybody loves it. I don't know if I sent you a copy of it. If I didn't, I just, I just mailed you my book. So I think I put a copy of Happy Endings oh, in it. Oh,
1: thank you so much, man.
0: And that song, I'm Smoking Pot, I Got My Dick Out, it's the whole world has heard that song and loves it. I get hate mail from people saying I can't get your stupid song out of my head, which is just so much fun. And, and that was my entree back in the music. So that, you know, and that, uh, that I, you know, that was it, just that one song, but my God, it's, it was, it was just spectacular and so fun. And, um, it was, you know, I used it as a, a theme song to our radio. I had a radio show on Sirius for eight years on Howard's channel called Jackie's Joke Hunt. And uh, that and that was insane. And oh, yeah. So i just been carrying on, and, and that's what I do. I haven't put out an album in 10 years, but uh, I have six killer albums that I sell for 20 bucks for all six downloads. And people go nuts. They they kind of can't believe how much. It's like 500 minutes of filthy jokes for 20 bucks. It's ridiculous. Oh, you know?
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And they're just, you are the joke, man. You know every joke. That is no uh, no exaggeration, my friend. And getting back to the comedy a little bit, uh, you worked with so many legendary comics. Uh, trans- I, I'm sure uh, something that you've stated before was huge for you. One of my favorite comics is when you got to work with Rodney dangerfield and uh you got to sell him jokes and it's about one of this that statement alone i sold rodney dangerfield jokes is one of the fucking coolest statements anybody can make in this life so
0: you know and the way it came about um is so fun uh that came about uh, because a guy i started with is full of shit And all comics, everybody's starting out as full of crap because we're all scratching and clawing and trying to get ahead. And I had moved into my grandmother's house after she died with my girlfriend. And I had just quit the band and I'm floundering. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm, you know, I got my shows at Neptune Pub and Eddie Murphy and Bob Nelson and Minervini and Rob Bartlett. They would all come by and do five minutes. There was no place on Long Island to do comedy except this place, Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn, where I met all these guys. So my friend, Richie Minervini would stop in once in a while and spend the night at my grandmother's house with us. And he came in one night and he said, Oh man, I went to Dangerfields tonight and I got on and I killed and Rodney loved me. And he told me he's going to use me whenever he can. It was so great. So I was so jealous you know, here you know, we're young guys and anything like get get to go, anything to happen, and I'm so freaked out. So I sit down at the typewriter. Meanwhile I'm living at my grandmother's and a couple of weeks earlier a friend of mine was in Peru selling Coke, doing Coke, <laughs> and he called me at four in the morning. And kept me on the phone long enough so I'd remember, because he knew I was drunk. And he said, Chief, you got to hear this joke. This guy, Tennessee Bob, told me this joke. It's the greatest joke. And he told me the two-bagger joke. So I wrote it down. Do you know what the two-bagger is? Oh,
1: yes. Oh, yes, sir. I know the two-bagger So he
0: tells me that joke. So I sit down, and I'm going to write jokes down for Rodney, because now I got to end with him, because Richie's his friend. So I write six pages of every joke I can think of that I could twist into a Rodney Dangerfield scenario. And I type six pages and I got a carbon copy of it and do the whole thing and take the six pages and fold them up and put them in an envelope and put Rodney Dangerfield. And the next time that walked in I said, Richie, you gotta do me a favor. You gotta give these jokes to your friend, Rodney Dangerfield. And he goes, oh man, he's, oh man. I didn't meet Rodney. I didn't I did I didn't even get on stage. He wasn't <laughs> even there. I'm like, you motherfucker. He goes, but I was there. And I swear to God, this is true. I There's no reason you should believe me, Johnny. But he reached in his pocket and took out a matchbook. And it said Dangerfields, and it had the address. And I already had the envelope that said Rodney Dangerfield. I just wrote in the address and just mailed it. I had nothing to lose. And two days later, the phone rings, and I'm at my grandmother's. Now she's dead. Everybody she knows is dead. Nobody has this phone number. Nobody knows. And the phone rings. I'm like Jesus Christ, and I answer the phone. Hello. I said, "Who is this?" It's Rodney. I said, "Rodney, who?" I knew you were fucking funny, you know. I knew you were funny. I could tell you're fucking funny. Some funny shit here. I'll tell you, this two bag is the funniest fucking joke I ever heard. You got to come to Westbury. Come on, come to Westbury. You know, if it's on me, you come in. And, uh, we're talking to dressing room. I want to buy four of these jokes. They'll give you a couple hundred bucks. And blah, blah, blah. So my girlfriend's like, who's on the phone? I said, it's Rodney Dangerfield. She says, fuck it. Who's on the phone? Richie? I said, it's, not, it's Rodney. So a couple days later, he's at Westbury Music Fair. We go into the dressing room. I got a ponytail. And ripped blue jeans. My girlfriend's 10 years younger, she's beautiful. And Rodney's head explodes. Oh Jesus Christ, look at her, she's beautiful. That's with the fucking hair, holy god You want some fruits? Good fruit, Want a, some... whoa, she's beautiful. Hey, I love these shoes, two bags really funny. Why don't you cut your fucking hair, blue jeans? What are you doing, <laughs> she's beautiful. Hey, have a piece of fruit. I'm telling you, our heads were spinning, it was unreal. And then we go out and he does his show and he does the two bagger joke and the house comes down he gave me a check for 200 bucks and, and it went on, you know, and I only sold him a couple of jokes after that here and there. But then there were times when he used jokes and he hadn't bought them, but not because he was subversive. It just, he was, you know, he's full of Coke and full of pot and full of booze. And he was all over the place. He wasn't exactly an accountant. And so, <laughs> so finally one night I, I, I said to him, listen, you use jokes that you never bought. He said, All right, well, and, oh, and I borrowed a thousand dollars from him to reprint my first album. I hadn't sold the first thousand, I probably gave away nine hundred of them, but I need <laughs> to reprint it. And so he wrote me a check for a thousand bucks, and I said, Listen, you know, you are using jokes. He said, All right, listen. All right, let's say I use ten that I didn't buy. So you owe me ten more jokes. You know, you owe me five hundred bucks, Lee. You owe me ten more jokes. I said, All right. And it was his idea. And his concept and when I tried to explain that on the Howard Stern show, they ran me over the rails. I get emails every day from people saying, Pay Rodney the money you owe him, you asshole. <laughs> it was you know, like a like a year later I wrote to him and said, I want to borrow two thousand dollars more and he never answered me. By the time he left the show that day, Howard had me owing him three thousand dollars. It was just it was funny. <laughs> It was really funny. But I loved the guy and we had so much fun. And he always said that fucking two bag was the best joke I ever had. <laughs> I can never be mad at you. It was the best joke I ever had. And then he I bugged him and bugged him and he finally took me away with him for two weeks. And you... I am still pulling stories out of my ass from those two weeks. We went to Fort Lauderdale for a week. He was just, you know, hanging out and uh going in the pool and going, you know, his daughter was there and her friend and his son. And then we flew to Las Vegas and he was at the Aladdin with uh, Paul Williams. You know, we spent a Sunday afternoon at Paul Williams house, me, Rodney, Paul Williams, and Paul Williams wife, Katie. And we did enough cocaine for a football team. (laughs) We drank and smoked pot. We were out of our fucking minds. And like, you know, like 30 years later, Paul Williams has been sober for 30 years. Right, right. And at some point I emailed him and said, Paul, This is Jackie Martley. Do you you remember me? He says, we spent an afternoon doing cocaine with Rodney Dangerfield. What do you mean, do I remember you? It was just, you know. You know,
1: him, too. Just think of that experience you had. I mean, there are people that would pay to be in that. Because Paul Williams, you take his musical genius away. He was just ubiquitous all through the 70s. You would just see him everywhere. And a great rock on tour and just everything I know of the guy, just the sweetheart of a guy. Um,
0: yeah, but then, you know, but then, you know, he kind of hit the wall. mm -hmm. He was getting a little too high for himself years ago. And I was working in Knoxville and I was doing a show. This is so long ago. The show was, it was a local show called Crook and Chase, Charlie, Charlie Chase and some girl named Crook. After that, they became national, became huge, and then completely went away. You know, I've watched so many people come and go, it's unreal. But they were brand new in Knoxville, and it was a talk show. And I was there promoting my show show at The Funny Bone in Knoxville. And the guest before me was Paul Williams. And I I never got to talk I never got to talk to him and say, hey, Paul, remember the time with Rodney? Because he was shuffled out, I was shuffled in. But I've never forgotten <laughs> <laughs> it. Sitting there and they're interviewing him. They said, Paul, you're such a you're such a, a, a superstar. You're, you're such a major talent. But have you ever written any songs that didn't make it? <laughs> and he said, Of course. <laughs> and they said, Like what? And he said, Brown Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't get any funnier than that. I thought I was going to die. What a funny line. Holy Jesus
1: Christ. uh, Now, I want to bring one more thing up about the Rodney time, because on this uh, Vegas trip, weren't you doing the Joe Ansis role in the crowd for (laughs) Uh, the...
0: You know, it's funny because uh, I met... I I know everybody. A good friend of mine is the guy that actually... uh, well, he sold the company, but he his company was Final Draft.
1: Yes, yeah, screenwriting software, uh, yeah.
0: Final Draft software, and uh, he's got a lot of rich friends. So we're having breakfast in New York, and one of his friends comes down. His friends tell me how he's good friends with Brian Roy, who's Rodney's son, and how Ro- Brian was pretty bad drinker, and he got drunk, and he you know, he'd almost getting fights, and at the last minute he'd say, you know, this is Rodney Dangerfield's son. And all of a sudden, from wanting to kill a guy, the people want to, you know, make him king, you know. It's just amazing, the strength. So I get contacted by Joe Ansys's children.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: It turns out that Joe, Gordon and, I forget her name, but they're trying to gather information on their father. Because very few few people really knew about him. For anybody that doesn't know, Joe Ansis was the sidekick to Rodney Dangerfield who was Jack Roy back then and Lenny Bruce and Buddy Hackett, they all hung around and supposedly Joe Ansis was the funniest guy by far. He was unbelievable and they all loved him, but he did not have the balls to take it to the stage. Right. So his kids are looking for him and they're saying, blah, blah, blah. And we've never been able to find Brian Roy. I said, I, I, I can help you find Brian Roy. I know a guy. so I called the guy and the guy said, well, I can put you in touch. And he put me in touch with Brian Roy's college roommate. And he's telling me stories about them going to danger fields and eating steaks and eating shrimp and chasing broads. And like, it's unbelievable. But Joe Answers, Rodney said the most fun that they had was him and Joe Ansus would stand in the hall with the door to his apartment barely open. And they would watch Rodney's maid, Thelma, They'd watch her watch game shows. <laughs> he said she would go fucking, you know, take the money, take the money, get the door, door number three, like because she didn't know anybody was there. They said, and that was entertainment to these these maniacs, these maniacs. So Joe's job was he'd stand in the back of the room, and when it got to a certain point in Rodney's act, he would yell something out, and that's what I did when we were in Las Vegas. And is that the Aladdin? You know, show business really, really sucks. It really does, you know. Uh we got off the plane in Las Vegas and there was a celebrity doing the, the announcements of what what planes are in what gate or whatever. Yeah. And Rodney says, You hear that? <laughs> that was my fucking idea, you know, it was my idea. That's Henny Youngman. You hear that? Well, they got all different celebrities. You know, this is Las Vegas. Everything is celebrity. So, you know, Henry Youngman's Saying go to gate three and buddy had you know, <laughs> my fucking idea. So we pull up in a in limo at the lead and I'm with this major superstar. I mean, he hadn't made movies yet, but he was ubiquitous because they had made all these Bud Light commercials in like 1980, 1979. And it was Rodney with all these different sports stars, oh, baseball yeah. stars, football stars, whatever but they are all with Rodney and it was the greatest, but you know, people would see him on Dean Martin or they'd see him on Carson, but that's once every month, once every three weeks, you know. Now people see him over and over and over on every channel was a major, major uh, run of commercials. He's like, I can't believe it. Everybody fucking knows me. You know, I used to walk (laughs) for a crowd. Now it's like, Rodney, hey Rodney, hi Rodney. It's kind of nice, you know, they fucking know me, you know. So he's, he, he loves this and it's all, it's all crazy. So he's a big celebrity. We get out of the limo. We walk in the hotel. The first thing he does is walks up to the ticket window and asks her, how are sales? And I said to myself, holy shit, it never ends. Right. It never ends. Here's a celebrity. You think the last thing on his mind would be how many people are going to be at his show. And he wants to know how sales are. How's the crowd going to be? I'm like, and that's when I realized that this will never go away. This is your life. This is how it's going to be. And, uh,
1: and this is like 1980, right? Easter time,
0: 1980. There's nobody in town. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but Easter time, 1980 was the heart of one of the gas strikes. So people weren't even going to the next town, let alone driving to Las Vegas. And it was a ghost town, just a ghost town. And, uh, But the crowds are maybe half full, two-thirds full, because it's still Rodney. It's funny. He took me down to see Wayne Newton. And here we are in the middle of a gas strike, and the people are four across in line around the entire hotel waiting in line to get in to see Wayne Newton. Wow. And we're walking along, and Rodney's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why don't you go see a real show? (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? Cocksucker. You don't want to see this motherfucker. So he seats me in there, and and I saw Wayne Newton, and he was and he was great, you know, it was really hysterical. But my job was, I'm in the back of the crowd, and at some point in Rodney's act, I yelled, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> yeah. Like a heckler, he goes, I yeah. get oh, guys for your system. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you come in the bathroom with me, I'll show you how small you really are. <laughs> Which and of course the the old ladies in the place that they're turning around and looking at me like I'm a like I'm a heckler, like a, like I'm trying to screw up the show and meanwhile that was my job, you know, which I just I just reveled in it. I just loved it. It was fantastic. Right, right.
1: Well wait before we get off Rodney here, what, what did Rodney say about Joe E. Ross? What did he say about him? Did he say
0: uh <laughs> Joey he used to tell stories about Joey, let about Joey Ross let me tell you about Joe E. Ross. Tell you about Joey Ross. <laughs> One night, him and another guy were in a play in Chicago. A couple of thespians. There were two thespians. And, and an admiral, a Navy admiral, and his wife said, You're so wonderful. You must join us for dinner. And so these two thespians, Joey, Ra- Joey Ross, who walked out of the sea, <laughs> Joey Ross was half animal. He walked out of the sea. He was- He was a thug. (laughs) And then he walked into car 54, and all of a sudden he was somebody. You know, he's a lowlife. You know, he said that, uh, uh, you know, the General Electric had a huge party to celebrate car 54 being number one. (laughs) So all the executives are there. So Francis is there. uh, Muldoon, you know. uh,
1: Fred Fred Gwynn.
0: Big Fred Gwynn's dressed in a hilton. He's there with his wife. And Joey Ross is there with a hooker. <laughs> and they're talking, they're, talking, they're talking to the head of just a grand yes. And this is my wife, Cheryl. Yeah. And, and nice to meet you, Joey. He goes, yeah. And he turns to his date and says, what was your name, honey? <laughs> he walked in out of the sea. He was an animal. He says, so they go to the Admiral's home. And they have dinner with the admiral and his wife, and they keep toasting the admiral, these two thespians. They toast the admiral, but every time they take a toast, these guys throw their drinks under the table. And the admiral gets totally loaded and passes out drunk. One guy fucked the admiral's wife and the other guy stole his overcoat. A couple of thespians. A couple of thespians. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and he, Rodney, loved telling Joey Ross stories more than anything. He, I guess, he was, and he was infamous. People already knew he was like, you know, like what he looked like in Car Fifty Four. That's who he was. You know, this little hairy monster. itself so, you know, I can only stories, imagine. It's they it, never get old. Those stories never get and, old. And then
1: it's know. like when you and another guy that I feel. I would call a peer of yours, definitely, who tells the jokes right, Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, it's like hearing you two get together. The, the the fucking Hollywood, just the showbiz fucking stories you guys tell. I've listened to some of those episodes I don't know how many times, man. And, and it's it's just it's a blast to talk about those old things, man. They're going to get lost if you don't keep talking about them.
0: You know, I was out in Las Vegas. And there was a guy when I was working in the studio in the 70s, a guy came in with his partner because they had won the American Song Festival and they won a grand piano and they won a couple hours to record at a studio. And they came into my buddy's studio and this guy would fool around and play the piano and do funny stuff in between takes and stuff. And I said to him, you know, Dennis, I'm just branching out and trying to become a comedian, and I think I got a chance, and you're five times funnier than me, man. You should do something. He goes, yeah, you know. And then one time he came in and said, Jackie, I got up at Dangerfields. I had a couple of rum and cokes. I got up at Dangerfields and played my guitar and did a couple of sh- jokes, and uh, they loved me. And Rodney said to me, hey, hurry up and get good so I can use you. <laughs> So Dennis Blair wound up being Rodney's opening act for like five years. Then he was Joan Rivers opening act for 10 years. And then for like 15 years, he was George Collins opening. act. Wow. And he was a good friend and still is a good friend. So I went out to Las Vegas a month ago and I hadn't seen him in forever. He actually married a girl from my hometown and me and this guy, John Scott and Dennis and his wife, we sat there telling stories and John said, "You got to come out here. We got to record these because it's just like, just like the Gilbert shows, just like the podcast." John was just dying because you know Dennis says something makes me think of something makes him, and but he's been around the block with, you know, everybody, and uh, it just the stories are just hysterical. Did, now did you? What have you heard? Did you hear the Steve Rossi story?
1: I have not heard the Steve Rossi story. Is there, Now, but very quickly, is Dennis the guy that, that used the guitar? Yes.
0: Okay, Okay. because yes, I saw the,
1: Carlin several times, and he was – every time he, he, we'd get there, obviously, too late or something, he'd already be on. He would already be on, his opener would, and that guy was amazing, man. Every, that, you know,
0: that's Dennis Blair. He's just fantastic. I just, you know, a good friend forever.
1: But the Steve Rossi story. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut no, you off. No,
0: well – <clears throat> when you hear this, you might stop me and say, no, 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 I heard you tell that. I actually was out in Las Vegas about 10 years ago and went to lunch with Steve Rossi and Rich Little and uh, like the the main owner of one of the huge hotels. And we're sitting there because and, and, Steve never saw a free meal he could pass up, you know. He... <laughs> I remember one time he was on the Stern show. We walked all the way across town to go to the Astro Diner because the guy wouldn't let him pay. I mean, he was just, just the greatest show business character of all. Now, when he started in show business in the late forties, he started as a crooner and an MC He wound up, you know, being Allen and Rossi, you know who they were, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Marty Allen, Steve, they were actually on Ed Sullivan with the Beatles.
1: That's right.
0: um, So, uh, Steve tells a story, but we're at lunch and we're all telling stories. And at the end of lunch, I said, "Steve, how could you not tell the May West story?" He said, "Oh, you know what? I didn't even think of it." I said, "Are you kidding? That's the that's the golden crown of the stories in my life. I saved that as my 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 main punch at the end when I'm talking to people." So by the late '40s, May West is very old. Yeah. But she still got that hourglass figure and she still got that smirk and she's still the same. And her stage show was she had like six or eight weightlifters, bodybuilders, that are on stage just wearing slingshot bathing suits, <laughs> completely coated with oil, right? Right. And she would walk up and down. Like rubbing their muscles and saying lewd things that I'm sure weren't lewd at all, but from late 40s United States, she's lucky she didn't get locked up, right? Right. But that's her that's her act. Steve Rossi's it's his first gig in show business, and he's the MC. He goes out and says hello, welcome to Mae West's show, and he sings a song and then introduces her, okay? His first night. She calls him into her dressing room after the show. And here he is. I don't know how, I don't know whether he was 20. I don't know if he was 30, whatever it was, but he's brand new. She calls him into her dressing room and pulls him over to the side of the bed. So he's standing in front of her on the side of the bed. <laughs> she pulls down his zipper and his pants and his other pants and pulls, pulls them down to his ankles. She takes her teeth out, (laughs) puts them in a glass of water on the side of the bed, and gives them an incredible blowjob. And he can't believe it. And when he has an orgasm, he freaks and goes, ah! And he pulls off her blonde wig. (laughs) And he's looking down at a bald... 65-year-old woman <laughs> with no teeth and a mouth full of his jizz. <laughs> and he said, I think that was my welcome to show. <laughs> <laughs> now, even if that's a lie, that's too that's so good a story to not tell, but that is a true story. Even you if know, it's I a lie. I told that story at lunch, and the guy's like, Steve, how could you leave that story out? Said, you know, I didn't think of it, you know. Right,
1: right, right. Well, it, it,
0: I mean, how crazy that's. I mean,
1: that's that's that's
0: insane.
1: Now, now,
0: just, it, it, that's one. That's just that's just wonderful. You know.
1: Um, before we, I, you know, I want to talk about you know your time on Howard Stern, um, you know, shaking the world and changing the world with that show, um. But I want to, while we're on this, you know, speaking of, um, like just a, that story you just told. A guy, much like Joe Ansis, that, I, that it has this mystery around him to a certain extent. Um, Pat McCormick. Uh, I know you were around him a little bit. Do you have any Pat McCormick stories?
0: <clears throat> only The only Pat McCormick stories I have, I don't really know any off the top of my head because they've all come to me from other people. But they're all unbelievable. My only Pat McCormick story is we were sitting there on the Stern Show one day. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, there's this boom. And through the door comes Jack Riley, who was one of Bob, Newhar- Bob Newhart's, Newhart's show, yeah. uh, one of Bob Newhart's clients when he played the psychiatrist on television. Chuck McCann, God. who was a New York child host when I was a kid, he had a you know a kids show. Sam Kinison <laughs> and Pat McCormick. <laughs> They come blasting in at 6.15 in the morning. Sam had done a show at the Comedy Store. He got done. They did a bunch of coke. And he said, come on, man, let's go do the Howard Stern show. And they got on Sam's plane, on Sam's jet, and flew to New York and came bursting into the Howard Stern show out of their minds. And I'm sitting there. And behind me, I'm looking at Kennison and Riley and McCormick and McCann it was like the Mount Rushmore of comedy and I'm like holy j-. of course this is long before the days of cell phones what I wouldn't give for a, a copy of that oh you know?
1: yeah yeah and then for any of our listeners who don't know uh Pat McCormick was a brilliant comedy writer but people my age might know him as better as Big Enos Burdett in Smoky and the Bandit. So that's who we're talking about. Uh here. Yeah,
0: he was like a rider on Laughing and on he was like head rider of Carson, Carson for a while. He was about six foot eight. He was monstrous and fat and just as crazy as a loon. And he <laughs> there's so many stories about the crap that he pulled, you know, practical jokes and you know.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um well, you know, let's get to your time on the Stern show. Now you guys you started in eighty three because um, you, you did three years for free, right?
0: <clears throat> what happened was uh, I was working at Garvin's, which is a, was a comedy club, Garvin's Laughing, in Washington, D.C., and the owner, Harry Crusoe, said, Jackie, there's a guy who was doing broadcasts in his underwear on Friday mornings from the club, and he just got fired by DC 101, but he got hired by NBC AM, up in New York City. You really should look him up because he would love you. And I'm like, all right. So at the time, me and Nancy are sending out records and cassettes to everybody. I mean, we couldn't afford it. We didn't have any money. And the postage and the price of making cassettes and records, uh, it, it just was staggering. And I had dial a joke that cost me a fortune, which never made me a penny. Five, one, six, nine, two, two, wine. Still going. Still going. Years going people cannot believe it <clears throat> but it got me you know it's gotten me everything you know at one point in 1984 Rick Dees told the entire national audience that 516-922-9463 was Tom Selleck's home phone number <laughs> <laughs> so it went nuts it went so so I send these records to this guy I never heard Howard Stern I didn't listen to the radio I'm a hippie. I listen to Eagles tapes and my own music, and and tapes of my jokes. Uh, you know, once in a while I listen to Ten Ten Wins to see if the world's still here. And uh, so we send the you know point blank, just like I sent the jokes to Rodney. You know, uh, just like I wrote to Gershon Legman, which is a whole nother tale that is something you'd be interested in on another planet. And I sent these albums to Howard Stern, care Car- WNBC. Who knew if they'd wind up in a pile? Who knew if they'd wind up, you know, dead letters? Who knows? Yeah. So I'm in my mother's attic. That's where my office was. I'm in my mother's attic with the ten dial joke machines.
1: Joke land, huh? Joke land, right?
0: Joke. Uh, the first joke land, the attic yes. of my mother's house, and uh, it was so funny. I started this nine two two wine because we had a comedy show that we were just starting at a restaurant, but we had no way to promote it. We had no money. So I got the bright idea. Why don't I get a comedy? Why don't I get a phone line and put jokes on it and then say, well, we're working. So we did. It was immediately busy all the time. So I called the phone company and said, listen, I need a rollover line. So it rolls to a second line. And the guy says, we can't do that. You're not in the business zone. I said, come on. The guy says, wait a minute is this the guy with the jokes <laughs> and I said, yeah, he says, hang on. He gets the foreman on the foreman says, all right, we're going to give it to you. Every time I added more lines, a different foot, they would come to my house because they wanted to see this operation. I went from one to two to four to six to 10 lines Damn. in my mother's attic. The foreman would come with the workmen and they'd look and they just, they just couldn't believe it. You know, and there were phone made answering machines. I think I kept that business. I kept them in business for an extra two years because nobody was <laughs> using that <their> crap. <clears throat> so Nancy calls me up because by now we've rented a house and she says, Jackie, that disc jockey, Howard Stern just called. He wants you to call him. He, you know, he liked the records. I said, really? So I called WNBC. Howard gets right on the phone and says, Hey, listen, man, we listen to your records. You know, every joke you want to come in today and hang out on the radio. We're doing a, uh, a talent contest over the telephone. I said, yeah, you know, what am I doing? You know, I'm hosting Governor's Comedy Shop in Levittown, and this is Manhattan. I'm like, whoa. I get in my car, I go in, and I sit down with Howard and Robin and Fred, which is the same three people I was sitting with the last time I was in there in March of 2001. And we sat there and laughed our asses off for four hours. And at the end of the day, Howard said, man, you're a lot of fun. Why don't you come back next week? came back the next week, and I came back the next week for three years for free. At some point, Nancy got him to where he was supposed to give me parking money, which he would always forget, or he didn't have money on him. It was just a running joke. And a couple times I walked out because he was so shitty. But then, you know, slowly but surely, I was passing him ideas more and more, and then he got fired. And then he got rehired at K rock and I was on one day a week again. And then it's so funny. I was, I was in Westford, I was in Virginia beach at the comedy club. I pulled up and the owner says, Jackie, you got to call home. I'm like, Oh, you know, nobody called me on the road. Right. Nancy never called me. So that meant if somebody was dead and I called up and she said, listen, Howard Stern wants you to call. I'm like, Oh, boy. So I called up and said, hey, listen, man, we're going to mornings. The rumor had been that we're going to go to mornings, but, you know, nobody expected it. He said, we're going to mornings starting on Monday. I need a price for two days a week. I gave him a ridiculously low price, and I came in for two days a week. And I went from two to three to four to five days a week within a couple months because, you know, not to be pompous, but he was much funnier when I was there because I was passing notes, and the only job description I had was I need you to come in twice a week, and I want you to do your thing with the notes. That was the total job description for 15 years, do your thing with the notes. So I came in, and I'm passing notes and passing notes, and he got funnier funnier and funnier and funnier and funnier in the show, it literally went, you know, that whole thing, oh, and the rest is history. Yeah. The rest really was history you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, the passing notes thing. Now, these ideas you were giving him, even when you guys were bagging on with one another, you're passing him the fucking notes for the things he's saying back
0: to you. Yeah, sometimes I'd give <laughs> him something to say about me. Sometimes I'd give him stuff to say about Fred, but he'd make it about me. Sometimes I'd give him something to say about me, but he'd make it about Gary. You know, sometimes it, it, we'd miss it in passing. He'd circle around and come back to the joke because it was so strong. I mean, it it was it was a it was a phenomenon, and it was a phenomenon that a lot of people didn't know about, and slowly but surely they did. But to this day, there's still lots of people that have no idea, which is because nobody cares. When you're watching the Tonight Show, you're not saying to yourself, "Gee, I wonder who wrote that joke for Johnny." Who right. gives a fuck? You just want to laugh and enjoy yourself, you know. So it, it was, but it was interesting as hell. But um,
1: did you have any idea of the rocket ship you were climbing into? Any of you?
0: N- nobody did. No, nobody did. Howard didn't. No, nobody had any idea. Uh, when I first got there, after I'd been there a while, I ran into a guy who said, Listen, uh, I used to live in Washington, D.C., and I was a big Stern fan, and now I hear him up here. And the difference is he used to be outrageous and funny, but now he's funny and outrageous. He said it's subtle, but he's so much funnier. And like, you know, you can be so much. If you're making people laugh, that takes so much of the sting out of it. And I would write things that would be him bagging on himself, (laughs) which, which, He just said, never, ever done. I can still distinctly remember the first time I did that. And everybody kind of took a breath because he was bitching and moaning about something and bitching and moaning and bitching and moaning, which is what he did. And I wrote a note and I put it in front of him and he kind of balked for a second. Then he said it, he's complaining. And then he said, walk a mile in my nose, Robin. (laughs) And it was like it was like it just let the steam out of all his complaints, like he fucked with himself and it just made him human, you know it it was just there. Uh, and that was the kind of subtle thing that you know, and we got funnier and funnier and funnier and you know i i i was I was his I just knew his voice, you know I just I knew I knew what worked and there was so many things to, so many times I put up a note and he read it before he read it. Right, you know what I mean. He just trusted me implicitly, which was, I mean, was such a well oiled machine. It was, it was a a wild thing to watch.
1: Oh yes, you know? oh yes. I mean, and the greatest art in the world, and I mean, I consider those mornings art. I mean, it's it's so transcendent, and those interviews, those 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 back and forth, everything on there is just pure gold, man. Now, how? How did you adjust to the morning routine, the morning lifestyle of getting What time do you have to get up to be there?
0: I I didn't. Um, like, all of a sudden, <clears throat> it's so funny because I didn't realize until a couple of months ago that every morning I was getting up at 4.20. How ironic is that? All of a sudden it hit me one time. I was like, Jesus Christ, I got up at 4.20. Because I never had the, I had every clock in my house set to a different time because I didn't want to, you know, if I was late in the living room, I'd go in the kitchen because I didn't want to acknowledge how crazy (laughs) it was. But in my entire life, I think I got up that early twice.
1: Right. You know,
0: once to go fishing and once to catch a a ride with my friend from Saratoga. I mean, I could count them on my hand. And all of a sudden we're getting up at 420. And I said, this isn't even, this isn't even the morning. This is yesterday, you know what I mean? It's crazy. I, yeah. you know, I've been a comic and a and a musician my whole life. You know, you'd watch uh, two Bob Newhart's and three Mary Tyler Moores. <laughs> yeah. and then at five o'clock in the morning, the comedian said, uh, "Here's Lucy," was God's way of telling comedians to go to fucking bed.
1: Right, right. You
0: know? And uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden, and I remember there was a a, a disc jockey on WNEW who's passed away and. He wound up destroying his legacy because I guess he was fooling around with underage kids or whatever, but nobody knew. But this guy, Dave Herman, who was a nice guy, and it was long past his prime, and he was doing afternoons or doing middays after us. And after, I don't know, a couple days of of getting up at this hour, he had been the morning man on WNEW for 25 years. And I went up to him and I said, hey, Herman, Jesus Christ, man, when am I going to get used to this? And I'm telling you, he had this huge smile, and he just smiled and said, never. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you cocksucker, you, you couldn't have lied. He said, well, in a month or so, it'll be fine. He says, you will never get used to it. And I'm telling you, never, ever, ever. To this day, I've been off the show 20 years. I wake up, and I'm like, I don't have to get out of bed. You know, it's like it was, you know. But once you get up and you're on your way, and you, people say, "How can you be funny in the morning?" You sit there and you have a cup of coffee, and before you start laughing, and it's off to the races. Right. You know, it now was you a total were, joy. You were still you know, drinking
1: it, at this point, so were you going out after? Were you still going out and trying to? You were trying to do, rock that lifestyle as well at the same time, right?
0: It was it was insane. At one point. I look back and I don't, I can't believe I'm, let alone the fact I was still drinking. We are, we were on five days a week. We had a channel nine television show, which meant we had to have a, we had a blank piece of paper on Monday and had to have an hour television show all taped by Friday night.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: And I was also hosting Rascals Comedy Hour on Thursday nights in West Orange, New Jersey, and I needed a six or seven minute monologue of new jokes every week. I look back and I'm like, H-? and meanwhile, in the, in the thick of all this, I'm recording comedy CDs and put out six different 80 minute comedy CDs, which, which not only did I have to record them, but I had to kill every time I'm on stage. So if I wanted to take out a bunch of jokes, I had to replace them with jokes that were just as good. It it was insane. It was absolutely insane. But you know, you get through it. You know, at one point, I lost six family members inside of two years, oh. and and like it it was it was just crazy, crazy, crazy. But we were good, and and people loved us. It made New York such a small town. Yeah. If I was late, I'd have you know. 12 cars around me yelling, you asshole, get to work. You know, <laughs> you know, it was like, it was like, it was ridiculous. It was just, it was just, just heaven. And then I wound up breaking the thing up because, you know, we all, we all were pitching in, but I was the only guy who asked for more. So I looked like, you know, it was like, I asked for an extra piece of bread, you know, and I was already making a fortune, but not relative to what was going on. And, and, And I was also totally shot, so at some point you make a deal with yourself, if I can't get this, you know, enough of this, you know. So, I mean, people are still mad at me, and other people are like, we understand, and you know. But it's my life, you know. So.
1: Well, I look at it, the amount of money that show was bringing in, I don't think people realize the absolute cash machine that show was, in just an almost obscene way, so... Uh, I I fall on the side of I, I, you know, I totally understand what you were what you were saying, you know, and uh, you more had earned that place at the table and and to be able to ask for more, I believe.
0: Yeah, but what made me seem so greedy is I was the only one asking, you know, Fred Norris has been there for 44 or 45 years, and I don't think in his whole life he ever said the words, can I have more? Right. He's the—he's just the biggest talent I ever knew. He's fast, funny, loyal, brilliant. I mean, he's—he's he's Boy Scout times, you know, Boy Scout uh, squared, and he's—and he, he, but but he never asked for more. So all of a sudden, I'm the new guy, and I'm asking for more. I'm like, well, why don't you shut up? Why can't you be more like Fred? And I'm like, you know, because I'm not, you know. Right. You know, he's a—he's a quiet German, and I'm a loudmouth. You know. <laughs> Well,
1: you know, what? look at the continu I look at the continuing the way you guys the the love that kind of goes back and forth through some of the people that came out of that show, like you and Billy West, you and you and Artie. Just hearing the camaraderie that has lasted through that show from from you guys is just amazing. I mean, you and Billy are always great together. Um Yeah, no,
0: yeah, me and Billy are still friends. I don't know if you guys know the me, Billy and John did a thing uh did you ever see that? We did like two or three hours of us sitting at a table.
1: Oh, I, I have to go look that up immediately because I have a question about John here in just a second. Um, it's just you guys oh, at a table. Oh, if
0: you've t- never seen that, it's just me and Billy and John, and I think it was three high-def cameras. And uh, I'll send you the link. I, I think I was sure you had seen it. Please, no, <laughs> it's, please um, do. Please I, do. I think it's called uh, – I don't know if it's called Stern Reunion – or you know, it's the, got the guy, the name of the guy's company, which I totally forget. Right. But it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. It was fun. We we talked about everything. You know.
1: Right on. And and you know, one thing I want to tell all our, remind all our listeners: there's so many great stories, especially if you're a, a fan of Jackie's work on the Stern Show and Jackie's uh, book Bow to Stern. Now um, wait,
0: now wait. I got to correct you. Okay. It's the joke, man. You are absolutely right. You're
1: absolutely right. Because
0: if you only look up Bowder Stern, you get a 7th grade sailing manual. (laughs) I swear to you.
1: Absolutely.
0: Bowder Stern is a 7th grade sailing manual. So it's got to be the Joke Man, Bowder Stern. And so many people tell me that they really love the audio version because they're driving along in the car. It's like hearing me on the radio again, which is... uh, which is fun. And, you know, I'll tell you, recording that book was so much fun, you know. Well, it- yeah, the trouble the trouble is, you can't, you have to read your book. Right. You know, I'm reading the book, and every sentence I'm thinking of 12 stories I could branch into. You know what I mean? Yeah. How many
1: sessions does that take? I mean, what is it? You do it in, you know, a week or a couple days? Well, no.
0: Or- All I had to do was read the book. It took two and a half days. There was mm-hmm. nothing to it. And the guys who were doing it, were huge fans, so they were totally enthralled by the whole process. It was that audible in in Secaucus, New Jersey, and they would they just couldn't have been sweeter. It was so great, really right, great. right.
1: Uh, in another book, Jackie has that I will remind everyone is Jackie the Joke Man Martling's disgustingly dirty joke book, which is a book that will raise your spirits and cleanse your soul. I mean, <laughs> such like it's such very a dirty. Very, uh, very dirty, very dirty, but you know it's it's hysterical um and and you know now i want to move into you know uh, coming off the book jackie has an excellent documentary called joke man that uh tell us a little bit about that and
0: tell us us you know we tried to do it for so long it took time i started doing it with some guys and uh my friend Tom started doing one, but that kind of fizzled out. Now we just—I sent you a copy. That was no, no big deal, but then uh, some other guys—we actually got going. And my old radio partner Ian said, "I don't like." They were kind of making it look like uh, what a schmuck I was for leaving the show.
1: Yeah, they were misrepresenting. You know? It wasn't—they
0: yeah. they weren't telling any lies, but the attack on it was like, "What was he thinking?" And Ian said, "No." This is about your life. This is about your legacy and your jokes. And you were on the Stern Show, but that wasn't your entire life. You know, you're you're a great person, and people don't know that because Howard didn't let that out, you know. And uh, when people say, God, you're such a great storyteller. or Like just the other day, Opie said to me, from Opie and Anthony, he right, said, you know, right. I can't believe Howard didn't give you more airtime because your jokes and stories are so great. And I said, that's exactly why he didn't. Right. You know, but I knew my place, you know, my place was not to pitch the ball and be, you know, my place was to, you know, pass the notes. And I, there was a job I created and I was happy with it. Well, um, it was, you know, it it was great fun. And uh, so finally we, you know, we pieced together this thing and the the documentary actually was finished just as COVID hit. And there was no way to take it around. And all the festivals, everything closed up. So then the festival started opening up but not to us (laughs) (laughs) because it's about a white guy who tells dick jokes that came from a nice section of town. You know, the fact that I was blue collar and everybody around me is gazillionaires. That doesn't matter. Right. So, uh, we actually, it looks like we booked the, the, uh, the first, uh, family and friends screening down in Belmore and everybody's really, really psyched. Oh, they should be. uh, And that's, uh, but I think that's going to be invitation only, but then we're going to take it around and, and I want to show it and then do Q and A afterwards because people, it, you wouldn't believe how interested people still are in this show. Wow! Well, and, and in what happened, because nobody knows what happened behind the scenes. And you know, there's so many stories like, you know, I, I got one billionth. I, I didn't, the chapter about making private parts was probably the best chapter. And that didn't go in the book. Right. What? You know, it was like Sophie's choice. What am I going to put in? I can only have 280 pages, and I could go on and on and on, and it's, it's so much fun. You oh, know? yeah.
1: Humble brag here. Jackie sent me the unpublished chapters from the book, and they are amazing. I mean, it's just insane, the stories Jackie has. But I want to say something about you that they, they I've seen the film. I'm fortunate enough to have seen it. Thank you, sir. Um, what Jackie won't say about this movie, I, I guarantee you, is the heart, just the beauty of the film, seeing the love from his peers, but, but from his family, from his ex-wife, from his girlfriend, it is one of those really, dare I say, touching movies, and I don't use that term very often, especially on this podcast, but I, I mean it, you have to be just flabbergasted when you saw a first cut of this, all the love coming back at you.
0: You know, people say it's, it's the furthest thing from what you would expect. I'll tell you, the guy who made it, Ian Carr, <clears throat> has a great production company, uh, IKA Collective, and he does all kinds of work, and he was my radio co-host for eight years, and I met him in 2000. Uh, he had just joined the Friars Club, I have been a member of the Friars Club already for like 20 years or something. But he was a huge, huge fan of the Stern Show. Huge fan. And I met him at the Friars Club and he was all excited to meet Jackie the Choke Man. And five minutes after we started talking, he said to me, Jesus Christ, you are nowhere near the guy from that show. <laughs> You're not the guy from that show. I said, that's... You know, that's what Howard paints me to be. And I'm, I roll with, it. I'm fine with it. He said, you're so smart and quick and funny and personable. And like, you know, how to hear to Howard, tell it, nobody here likes you. Nobody likes to talk to you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Opie said, why don't you tell more stories? Anytime I told a story on that show, He'd either cut me off or they'd say it was a crummy story or if I told a joke, him and Robin would pretend they didn't get it. But that was part of the whole thing was right. to fuck with me. And I understood that. But people, people don't know that. You know what I mean? When he says that's a crummy story, even if he's lying, people are like, Oh, I guess it's a crummy story. I always said a crummy story. You know what I mean? It's uh, his power was, uh, it was all enveloping, but well, that's, But Ian was so shocked, and then, you know, we've been really best pals for 20 years, you know.
1: Well, uh, the biggest shock for me, and I don't want to ruin any spoilers. We'll cut this out if you want me to. Is when I get to the end, I'm like, who's done this bouncy, fun soundtrack throughout this whole movie? And it's you.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, that, that tickles me more than anything. I mean, there's songs on there that aren't mine. But most of those, you know, instrumental cuts and uh, or else, they're, they're actually songs from Happy Endings. That's so but great. Just the, the the instrumentals of the songs from Happy Endings, you know.
1: Right, right.
0: And there's some kids' songs I wrote, the, the music from them. You know, I, I did five kids' songs with the best guitar player and the best banjo player, you know, in the world. We we recorded it at Tony Bennett's Sunday's studio. Damn. I mean, it's... You know, the the people that have touched me, and I've been lucky enough to touch it, they could, could fill a, a courthouse. You know, it's just Absolutely. fun. You know, really nuts. I got to say, I love sending you those pictures that you don't know who they are. That's really funny.
1: Now, you got to give me credit now on some of those, man. I, I don't know many people that could pull Carmine Apathy right out
0: like that. Come no,
1: on. <laughs> you know,
0: anybody can do Billy Joel. Some right. people could get Leslie West, but Carmine Apathy, you know, I didn't even know who the fuck that was. Right. You know. <laughs> I mean I'm kidding. Now I I never asked you. You didn't really think that was my father. You knew who that was. No, right? no,
1: I told. You. I was I was messing around at that point. Oh, we but were, you, uh...
0: you never know, because the whole world doesn't know. Professor Owen Corey passed away a couple of years ago. He smoked pot every day of his life from the time he was twenty five till the day he died at hundred and four. Every day he smoked pot.
1: He's my hero. I'm about halfway through that.
0: (laughs) He (laughs) says he was so great. Oh man, that is uh, and and
1: you know uh, uh, just the people you've met, Morgan Fairchild, your friends with Sean Young, your friends with Willie fucking Nelson. I mean, it's 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 a testament to how cool you are, how how your tenacity, just people like you, Jackie.
0: Me and, and, me and Willie me and Willie exchange dirty jokes like once every two weeks, once every three weeks. I send him 100 jokes, he sends me one, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I it's something it I so heard much. in 1950, but it's fucking Willie, you know, he's my guy. Well, yeah,
1: Willie's, I, I saw Willie for the first, fr- I'm, I'm 47, I saw Willie the first time when I was, in 1982, my parents took me. I think it's the first time I all smelled pot at a concert. Um, but Willie's on my Mount Rushmore of people I want to smoke with one day and, and interview, and uh, I got to get uh, got to get on that. So, uh, but he uh, yeah, there's so many other people in here. I don't want to ru- ruin any of the surprises when people. Hey, I got
0: I don't know if you know this story. Stop me if you heard this. What I used to do is people would come on the show, and Howard's rude. Howard would never introduce anybody. And we'd have people on the show and it was always exciting. Always people. I really loved but people would come in there. Like, you know, like a, a deer in the headlights, like no, they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know how much Howard was going to give them a hard time. So they weren't really open to what's going on. So they'd walk in and sit down and get interviewed, whatever. And I used to tell Steve Grillo, the intern, uh, this is long before I had him getting people to sign autographs on the papers which is a whole nother book that I got to put out, which is interesting. I'd I'd have Grillo take the funniest thing I said about somebody and they would autograph the note. Oh. And I've got 120 notes of you could not write this eclectic list.
1: Oh, my God. You know,
0: John Wayne Bobbitt, Adam West, <laughs> Barbara Streisand's <laughs> sister, Vanilla Ice, uh, you know, you know Brantford Marsalis, Al Michaels. You could not you comp- could not compose this list um, Geraldo, you know but before that what I'd do is I'd say grillo find out the guests either get their address or get their manager's information and he'd get me the information and I would send my joke stuff to the to the guest and the next time the guest would come on they would forget that they had never met me right. Because I got my joke tapes and blah, blah, blah. And they're listening to them. They're loving them. So they're walking in. And, hey, Howard, hey, Jackie. And it's so funny because they don't know. We don't know each other. And it happened with with Diamond David Lee Roth, with Clarence Clemens, with Roger Dolce. Wow. Uh, it just, and it, was, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't being subversive. I was just trying to make them laugh because I knew they would love this stuff.
1: You told so Paul to, McCartney a joke. You know, yeah. yeah. You told So when Palmer-
0: Willie Nelson came on, I sent all my stuff to Gator, who was his bus driver. I don't know if Gator's still alive. Who knows? But uh, Gator was Willie's bus driver forever and ever and ever and ever. I sent all my shit because he loved jokes more than anybody. <clears throat> and then a year or two later, an old friend of mine from a band named Zebra. Have you ever heard of oh, Zebra? Oh, I know Zebra.
1: Who's behind all the right, door? But- yeah.
0: Well, Felix and, and those guys did two weeks at the studio when I worked there where they lock out the studio and there's no other musicians. They just, you know, stay set up and they did a whole album there. And I brought them home to my house for Thanksgiving, you know, the whole deal. <clears throat> so here it is, 25 years later, uh, I get an email from Felix because email is great. Like you all of a sudden you're finding people you never spoke to in years. Jackie, this is Felix Hanneman from Zebra. Do you remember me? I'm like, I said, what are you talking about? We were up each other's ass for two weeks in 1975. Of course I remember you. He said, well, uh, do you like Willie Nelson? And I'm like, what do you mean? Of course I love Willie. He said, well, listen, my girlfriend, she's now his wife. My girlfriend is a masseuse. And she massages the Giants and the Jets and some of the hockey players and Willie Nelson. (laughs) And she's started she's doing him tonight at Webster Hall. Do you want to come down and uh, and see the show and meet Willie afterwards? I'm like, are you kidding me? So I go down to Webster Hall. Fucking Willie, it's 12 o'clock and he's still playing. I got to be up at four 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I'm like, and I don't know if you know Webster Hall, but we're on the second floor. The bathroom is in the basement. Oh. And I'm dying, so I, I'm still drinking at the time. I walk all the way down to the basement, take a leak. And I'm stoned, and I'm drunk, and I realize if I go back up to the seats and wind up smoking pot with Willie Nelson, I am going to wind up missing work. I'm going to get in <laughs> a lot of trouble. And I bit the bullet and walked out of the club and went home. And oh. I said, I can't believe that I'm blowing this fucking opportunity. And a couple weeks later, Felix calls me and says, listen, you missed out meeting Willie. He's playing at Westbury Music Fair on Long Island tonight. Do you want to go? I'm like, well, hell yeah. (laughs) So me and Nancy go, and two of the New York Giants are going, and the four of us are there, and the four of us are walking around in the top level of Westbury Music Fair looking for a place to smoke pot. I think it was during the season. And we're looking for a place to get stoned. It's unbelievable. And after the show, we go out. And Willie Nelson always goes to his bus, hangs out for a few minutes, and then comes out and signs autograph and talks to the people until they're all gone. He has always done yes. that. He's so fucking popular. He's just unbelievable. So we go out to the bus, and Willie's guy see's sees Lisa and Felix, and she's like, "Hey, Jackie here, yeah, Jackie, you guys, and he sees the giant come in, so all this big gang of people we walk through these people and we walk onto the bus, and Willie is sitting at his little table there in the bus, and I sit down across from him, and it's my wife and these two monstrous giant football players at least <laughs> Felix and I can't believe I'm sitting across from Willie Nelson and like, holy Christ. I said, this is so great. And we had played together on the Stern show. Right. He actually played on the road again. And I had actually took, played the guitar lead. <laughs> well, I, I have it on tape. It's unbelievable. He says, somebody play it. I'm playing the guitar. And Howard's like, what the fuck is going on? So he says, yeah, I remember you, man. And I said, yeah. and I said well, I got some great homegrown. He said, well, I'll spark it up. And I take out a joint. Willie has been on this fucking bus for 50 years. The Giants are sitting there. My wife is sitting there. Felix and and Lisa are sitting there. He's looking for a match. I'm like, <laughs> Willie, you've been on this fucking bus for 50 years and we're looking for a match? You've got to be shitting me. And I start pulling out the drawers. You know, it's a little bus with all the little knickknacks and all the places. I this I swear on my mother, this is true. I pulled out a drawer, and looking up at me, is a copy of my fucking CD, oh. Hot Wheels and Donuts.
1: Oh God!
0: And I, my heart raced, and I said, "Holy shit!" And I reached in, and I looked at him, and I said, "Willie, you cocksucker!" I said. This was about to be my favorite story in my life, that I was on your bus, looking for a match, and I found a copy of my CD, Hot Dogs and Donuts. But you motherfucker, it's still in the plastic. <laughs> <laughs> he laughed so fucking hard. I was like, I said, I can't leave that out of the story, because it's too priceless, you motherfucker. Oh. And and then somehow, a couple of weeks later, a friend of mine was doing a show where uh, people called in and emailed, but it was a special show for Sony, and it was Willie and Dr. John. It's like three weeks later, and we wind up on the bus again.
1: Good God. And I'm
0: sitting across from him, and he goes, what are you doing here again? I said, listen, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> and, you know, I've been on that bus like a dozen times. but uh,
1: How good's his pot?
0: Uh, well the last time when we did the interview for um, for the documentary me and Ian went down to to New Orleans uh, where he was doing House of Blues and we went on the bus with him to videotape and uh, they closed the doors and my buddy videotaped us you know me and Willie telling jokes and talking for about 10 or 12 minutes we get done and he pulled out his Willie's Reserve oh. He takes a big toke and he hands it to me, and I take a big toke. And my buddy Ian is not a pot smoker; he's a Jew. And he's like, you know, he's a Jewish businessman, but he's a great guy. He's not a big pot smoker. And but when Willie Nelson hands it to you, so he takes a hit. Ian goes into a coughing fit. So while he's coughing, I said, "Give me that thing again, Willie." I took another hit. Ian takes another hit, and Willie, you know, takes a hit, and We get out off the bus because he's got to go do his show. We go to go in and we can't get into the show because Ian has the package with his camera on it. (laughs) You know, the the knapsack with the camera. So he's got to go back to the hotel and drop off the camera and come back. We weren't that far away. But we were so stoned out of our fucking mind. He had to find his way back to the hotel and back to House of Blues. I go in. I'm waiting for him in the back. I'm so out of my mind. I got to lean against the wall. He comes in. He finds me. He says, I can't believe I found you. And the two of us are so crazy stoned. And there's Willie. He does a 75-minute flawless set. He's as stoned as we are. We're like, holy motherfucking God. Look at that. Yes. You know, it's like when you share pot with somebody, you're all in the same head. Oh, which, uh, which just, just spectacular. That's so, sp- yes, he, he does have good weed is the answer.
1: Good deal. That's <laughs> that's just golden. Well, well, Jackie, you have been – we could sit here all afternoon. Uh, I, the time you've given us is just so generous. And I, I just want to go back and tell everyone, go get Jackie's books. Definitely get Jackie, the Joke Man Martling, Bow to Stern – because the stories in that, we couldn't cover that in five interviews. Um, I mean, so many great. The story about you, you, uh, your you and your mother in the car. I know it's a very famous story. I mean, there's just so many things. But before we go, I do want to mention Stuttering John, John Melendez, and uh, you know one,
0: uh, one more thing, so we don't forget it. The, the thing What I've been doing that people really, really love is I've been doing Cameo.com which people will hire me to tell you know tell a joke or say happy birthday or congratulations on your divorce. And it's two or three minutes of jokes. <laughs> but it's great because you can say my mother is fat. She hates her uncle. He likes poop jokes. She likes shoes. My aunt's Italian. No matter what people tell me, I can go right down the line and hit every bullet point that they ask for. And I've been doing a million of these things. And it's cameo.com slash Jackie Martling. I don't mean to make this into a commercial, but oh, i am no, making good money with it, but people are like... I got like 115 five-star reviews. People go nuts, so uh, that's the end of the commercial, and, uh, and one thing I... What I tell people is when we do a podcast, people get a lot of great feedback. I always say, listen, tell your listeners to send you questions. If they're like, boy, I'd really like to ask them about this, or ask them about that, and just accumulate a bunch of questions and then we'll do this again. And you can ask me, you know, point blank. Uh, Charlie wanted to know, uh, you know, what's your, what's your knee size, you know, whatever it is. Absolutely. And it, it just makes it really fun. You know, hell yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I, the cameo thing, I can't say enough. If you want to have Jackie one-on-one, all he just said I, c- I can't imagine being 13 and being able to do that with, say, George Carlin when he was it, alive. It, Having that technology is amazing.
0: You know what? It's almost like I should charge more because people can't believe what they get for 50 bucks. Hey. hey, the You po- know, they, they're like 50 bucks. They probably think, oh, he's just going to say hello. You know, and I, you know, some mornings I just sit there and go on and on. And my, my girlfriend Barbara's like, will we shut the fuck up and say goodbye? <laughs> <You know. laughs>
1: Well, 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 one last thing I just want to get to because it's such a great story, yeah, there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uh attention brought to the Ted Williams interview that John did um but I think the funnier story is the Ringo one. Would you mind telling that story and and about writing that question?
0: That is so ridiculous <laughs> it's so, it was so perfect because that is not. That's the oldest joke in the world, the oldest musician's joke. It's not something I wrote. It's it's something that's been around forever, and I gave it to John. And Ringo, it was Ringo's first tour since he'd been a Beatle. It was Ringo's all-star tour you know, with like Leslie West, Joe and, and Walsh, everybody, okay. and Joe, Joe Walsh, all these people. And Leslie told me that they would play my CDs on the plane and everybody go nuts. But that, that was much later. This was the press conference to announce that a Beatle was going to have a world tour. And it was live from someplace in Manhattan. And, There were literally a billion people listening, (laughs) literally a billion people listening. And there's, you can imagine all the press in the world is there. So the odds of John getting off a question were absurd. And they picked on John (laughs) and John did. What are you supposed to do? The, The setup I gave him, but fucking Ringo gave him the exact right straight line. Like if I was writing what I would like the other guy to say, like Abbott and Costello, he said the precise thing. And John, they, they say, oh, John Melendez K Rock, and John says, Ringo, what, what, what'd you, what'd you, what'd you do with the money? And Ringo said, what money? He said, the, the money your mom gave you for singing lessons. <laughs> A billion people, and we were listening live. And I looked at Fred, and we were like, "Oh God!" I, you know, just insulted a fucking beetle in front of a billion people. Oh, it was great. Oh, and meanwhile, but... Ringo didn't flinch. He said, "I spent it on fish and chips." Then <laughs> he just took the next question. He do What's he give a fuck? He don't you give know.
1: a fuck. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I bet you he laughed about it later when he really thought about it. Um. Oh, well, hey, that's you know that's a great place to end for this uh, interview with us. Um, like I said, we could talk all afternoon, but Jackie, you got any last uh, last comments or anything for our listeners? Any plugs you want to make?
0: No, I'll just uh, I'll just tell you one joke and then I'll hang up. Oh, <laughs> one thing is, I answer all email. Nobody ever believes me, but if somebody has a question or wants to say hello or wants to complain, my email is jokeland at AOL.com. J-O-K-E-L-A-N-D at AOL.com. I love hearing from people. I always, always respond. And my website is jokeland.com. And I tweet a joke every day at 4.20 p.m. International <laughs> Marijuana Time. Absolutely Filthy jokes every day at 4.20. Old, classic, ridiculous, silly jokes. But I live for them. That is my life. And the Joke Man's coming out. The uh, Joke Man is the name of the of the uh, documentary, and I'm very thrilled. And I'll tell you one joke, and then I'll say goodbye. And uh, I, I sent you my book, and I also sent you the second joke book, which I don't even know if you know it exists.
1: I do. I do. I did not overwhelm our listeners with uh... <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, it's a whole trove of shit. You know, you think I would have made a dollar, but no. It was a
1: trove of good stuff, man.
0: So the so the guy comes up in front of the divorce judge. He says, "I get a I got to get a divorce," and the judge says, "Why do you want a divorce?" He says, "Because my wife, all she does is eat pancakes, she's constantly eating pancakes." And the judge says, "That's not a big deal. I eat pancakes." And the guy says, "Not while I'm fucking you." <laughs> listen thanks thanks for doing the interview i hope it went well i hope to hear from your listeners and uh i'm going to send you some more of those obscure pictures and let's stay in touch
1: let's stay in touch and 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 everyone please uh grab jackie's books uh and 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 give me your questions because i know we're going to do this one again there was just too much to cover today um and and uh the documentary is called joke man and will be out before you know it thank yeah, you so coming much soon. Jackie.
0: coming soon to a theater near you i never thought i'd get to say that all and right johnny thank you man
1: thank I appreciate you it. now that was a ride wasn't it jackie's the coolest and i just want to thank him again so much for for having a chat with us and coming on the Ray Show podcast please make sure to uh Go to all his links, all his, all his plugs, and uh, make sure to uh, hit up Cameo if you are thus inclined. So uh, that's about all for us this week. Uh, we'll have a new episode for you next week. Stay switched on, and we'll talk to you soon.